0: I was not born to just sit back and not do anything. I was born to run, so I'm going to run. Mesdames et Messieurs,
1: the greatest
2: festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games,
0: is about to begin. This is going to be close.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today?
1: It's been a rough week in America. <laughs> it's been a rough week in America. <laughs> so so our tired. Job this, I know. Our job this week is to not mention that E-word and make people feel better.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Oh, hey, I got something that might make, make you feel better. Speaking oh. of that, yeah, so I ended up just getting a copy of David Miller's The Official History of the Olympic Games in the IOC, Athens to Beijing, 1894 to 2008. This is part of my birthday present. And it, this is the official history from the IOC, rings on like every page, okay? And I kind of flipped through it a little bit. I'm going to have to start digging soon, and it's like every— Games has a chapter, and then they also talk about some IOC stuff. So every IOC president has a chapter, right? So I was just curious about, you know, your buddy Avery. And the chapter on Avery is called Wayward Fanaticist. And it starts off with an excerpt from an address he gave. But let me read you the first paragraph of this chapter. Avery Brundage was despotic. A moralistic bulldozer, fanatical defender of de Coubertin's legacy, loyal to close friends who were few and occasionally undeserving, prominent engineer slash building contractor and self-made billionaire, champion of public virtue and philandering husband. His presidency, which was to last for 20 years, varied in style between that of godparent and bully, so it was unsurprising that his nickname was slavery bondage.
1: I have never heard that.
2: Well, (laughs) we're going to learn. Oh, wow. He was the best and occasionally the worst friend that the Olympic movement could have for his obsessive commitment to the past, to traditional sporting ideals of the 19th century, and what he perceived as de Coubertin's philosophy, blinded him to the changes of an evolving society, almost all of which operated at a financial level out of sight and far below his acquired standard of living. Nobody could have had better intentions, yet such were his dogmatic and eventually isolated beliefs that by the end of his presidency, when he was in his ninth decade, his attitudes jeopardized the very institution that was the most cherished aspect of his life above and beyond family and friends. Now, who wrote this? Uh, David Miller. David Miller is is now my new
1: best.
2: Right. He's a journalist and uh,
1: in England, it seems like. Well, he is also now my new best friend. That was fantastic because he captured everything I hate about Avery Brundage while acknowledging the success he had as president.
2: Right. So I have high hopes for this book. If the IOC is willing to talk quite frankly about some of these things, can't wait to dig in.
1: Dave and I will be having some tea when we're allowed to travel again. (laughs) I'll be showing up at his doorstep. I might terrify him, but then he'll understand. (laughs) But I thought you would enjoy that. I do. Slavery bondage. <laughs> that would have been his b-boy name.
2: <laughs> I'm just now picturing like a ninety-year-old Avery Brundage on one hand, like doing a doing a b boy move.
1: Well he could spin on his belly. <laughs> that would be the Brundage. Oh jeez. I feel better already. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Good. All right. Well, we're going to have a little bit of a different show for you today because uh, I was an election poll worker. So my day on election day started at 430 in the morning and we didn't leave the polls until about nine o'clock at night. then I was uh, super giddy and up for till about one o'clock in the morning. So I'm exhausted. And uh, have to catch up on my other work, too. So we're going to do basically uh, our second part of our interview with Madeline Manning-Mims. But before we get to that, we wanted to remind you that we're still trying to get funding to be able to offer transcripts of our shows. Help us with those efforts at patreon.com slash flamealivepod. Or if you're interested in advertising on the show, email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. So this week we've got part two of our conversation with two-time medalist Madeline Manning-Mims. Madeline became America's first and currently only female gold medalist in the 800 meter run which she earned at her first Olympics in 1968 at Mexico City. At Munich 1972 she didn't get out of the 800 meter semifinal but did earn a silver medal in the 4x400 meter relay. She also had a tough race at Montreal 1976 and then kept training and was named to the 1980 team that didn't go to the games because of the US boycott. Last week we learned about madeline's work as an olympic chaplain and this week we look at her olympic career and how that played in her call to chaplaincy take a listen okay so i have a question about when you look back at how you got this calling i was reading a book about 1968 and your race and Uh your your competitor uh Vera Nikolic from Yugoslavia, and she mm. dropped out of her race partway through in her semifinals. Yeah. And then yeah. you went to, she was having some issues and, and you went to go find her before your
0: finals. Tell us a little bit about that story. That is powerful. Probably the the one time where God really showed me who I was in, not only in the body of Christ, but in the whole spectrum of athletics as far as it concerned me, I began to realize who I was through that scenario. Vera and I ran against each other the year before in the USA versus Europe Games in Canada. And we were, I mean, it was she was the best in the Eastern Hemisphere in the women's eight hundred. And I was the best in the Western Hemisphere in the Women's 800, and we came together. And it was huge news. It went over everything. You know, some of the best half-mile women are going to face each other today, specifically uh, Vera Nikolik and Madeline Manning. Okay, so both of us were scared spitless, you can imagine, because the tension, the energy that was coming from both of us in preparation to race against each other was very, very high, long story made short. I beat her by a lean after she knocked me off the track into the infield, and I got up and was mad enough to kill somebody <laughs> and, and ran caught her, and out leaned her at the at the end of the race. I was so sick after that race because some guy i don 't know who he was, but a big fat guy jumped out on the track. Right as I was coming through, driving through, and leaning with everything I had and caught me. And I don't know if he thought because I was leaning so hard that I was going to fall again, as I had did previously in the race. But he was going to be there to be my savior. And he just whipped me up and caught me around my midsection, and it knocked me out. So they ended up having to take me into the French-Canadian a training room to help me. And while I was in there, somebody ran in and said, somebody is running. They said it in French and ran out and everybody ran out. And I'm laying there on the table, half <laughs> half aware of what is going on. I don't know what's going on. I was afraid of the because nobody spoke English. And I'm looking in these, all these white people's face and they talk in a different language and everything. It's frightened me. And all of a sudden they disappear and I fall off the table and the fall gives me a real jolt. And all of a sudden I have to go to the bathroom, both front end and back end. And I'm, I'm in this stall, sick as a dog and just hurting all over and totally confused. And I'm crying. And at, at the time that I'm crying, I began to cry out to the Lord. And I was mad. I was like, "Why did she hit me? You know, that was unfair. She should be disqualified." You know, I'm talking to Lord about my situation, and I'm, as I'm sitting on the potty, feeling, you know, very sick from both ends, and quietly, I mean, Lord, let me get over my temper tantrum. And quietly, the Lord spoke to my heart and just said, "Madeline, you don't ever have to hate." anybody to be number one. For in due time, I will raise you up. And then my heart was so convicted because at one period of time when she hit me and I fell to that ground and I thought, your face is going in the mud. I was so angry with her that I, I guess in my heart, I just wanted to kill her. (laughs) I don't know how, but I was so mad. And the Lord checked me on it right in, in the potty. As I'm there in the stall, he checked me and like, you do not have to hate to be a champion. In due time I'll lift you up. And and I start I said, Father, I, I, I'm so sorry. I'm so you're right. I have no I did not bring that woman into this earth and I have no right to even want to take her out. So I repented. And as soon as I did, the sickness went away. I didn't feel sick anymore. I got up. I walked out. And so finally, when they were calling for us to come to the, the uh, award stand, we got up there and we had to wait on her to get there. She gets there and she doesn't want to be there, first of all, because she's second. So they announced our everything that she would not allow them to put the medal around her neck she just took it in her hand and while we were standing there what put icing on the cake was they announced that i was the most outstanding female athlete of the meet (laughs) and doing that she took her medal and threw it into the crowd and the girl from germany was third and she started hollering at her good for you If they had disqualified you in the first place like they're supposed to, I would be standing in your place. (laughs) That was inside of me. I was like, yes, (laughs) yes, yes, yes. (laughs) But I was like, I am not opening my mouth because I do not want that potty experience again. (laughs) I know. I know my place. (laughs) So this is how Vera and I started off you know, just hating each other. Okay, so we get to the Olympic Games in Mexico the next year, and we end up in the semifinals. Uh, They're taking the first four. We both knew that that was no problem for us to make the finals, so I started running, and at the end of the race, I came through first. I was very relaxed, and then I thought, now, where is Vera? Because I know she should be either close to me or in the first four somewhere. And I kept looking and looking and I didn't see her. And finally the next heat came out. And uh, one of our U.S. girls was in that heat. And I asked her, Doris Brown, and I asked her, I said, Doris, where is Vera? And she said, I don't know. And I said, I mean, did she walk past you as you were coming out? She said, no. I said, well, she started with me. But I don't, I can't, where is she? And she she said, I, I don't know. And then I realized I needed to leave her alone because she was getting ready to compete and try to make the finals. So I, I went on back to our hotel. And while I was in there, they said, did you hear what happened to Vera? And I was like, what? They said, well, she ran 300 meters, stopped. Walked across the track, out the tunnel, and came up on the ledge where it was a sombrero-looking thing that that it was in the shape of a sombrero. The stadium, and she tried to jump off and commit suicide. And I was like, What? What? What do you mean? I and I, I had nicknamed her the Tiger Lady. I said, You you talking about the Tiger Lady? What? Why would she want to do something like that? They were like, mm, we don't know. So later on, I did find out that her delegation had come to her and told her that, you know, because they hadn't won anything during the whole Olympiad, that she was not to come back with anything less than the gold medal. And the pressure that that mentally put on her, when there's already pressure that you put on yourself and representing your country, yourself, and and your loved ones, and and being, you know, before the world, that was too much, and she had a mental breakdown, and that's why, she was trying to commit suicide. Well, I hadn't seen her or talked to her or anything until the day of my finals, and on the day of my finals, I was getting ready to go out the village and catch the bus and go over to the stadium when one of my teammates said, "Hey, Madeline, there's." Vera back there, and I turned around and I looked and about two hundred yards away, Vera was standing in front of one of the dormitories a- a- in front of the gates there, and there were two guys standing beside her and inside of me, i just I had this fight this this thing that was happening inside of my mind and my heart. one part of me was saying go back to her. She needs you now. The other part was saying, you need to go on. Your coach is waiting on you. This is your finals. This is everything that you work for. Go on and, you know, just, she's got somebody there with her. Don't worry about it. And yet that pull to turn around and do something, whatever that was. So finally, I looked at one of my I said, would you tell my coach I'll be there, in, you know, on the next bus. Don't don't worry. I'll be there in time. I've got plenty of time. And I turned and I walked back. And I remember, and excuse me if I get really emotional about this, because I still feel this and I still see it. As I walked toward her, my heart began to tremble because all of a sudden I realized, wait a minute. She doesn't speak English and I sure don't speak no no. <laughs> whatever she speaks Yugoslavian how am i going to communicate with her and what do i say i had no idea but as i got closer and closer to her i just i i just looked at it. i looked at her and and it frightened me because it was the first time i ever looked in anybody's eyes that did not want to live and it was really dark and i said vera 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 And I finally reached out, and I grabbed her by her shoulders, and I shook her, and I said, Vera. And she looked up at me, and my heart fell even deeper because there was nothing. There was only darkness in her eyes. And I said, listen, you know, you're one of the best athletes in the world. You cannot give up now. You've got to keep going. No response. And I was like, listen, you're young. You can go home and put this behind you and start over again. No response. And I kept trying to talk to her, kept trying to say something that would take that blank stare out of her eyes and out of her face. And finally, I said, Dara, I don't know if you understand what I'm saying at all, but understand this. I hope you can get this. God created you one of the greatest athletes on the face of this earth. And you're young and you're still able to do what he purposed for you to do. I said, go back home, find God, find out who Jesus is and allow him to love on you and bring, bring uh, healing to your heart. And I don't know what else I said. I just, you know, it was just, flowing coming out and while i was talking to her tears began to just roll out of her eyes still blank look still empty but tears began to roll and i i just took her in my arms and embraced her and we both cried and then i turned around and i left and i went to catch the bus to take me over to the stadium and of course you know, history was made. I was able to win and set a new world and an Olympic and American record and become the first woman in the United States to ever win a gold medal and open the door for women of color, of all peoples of color, that the myth was that people of color could not run long distance because they only had fast twitch muscles, which was a lie. It was not the truth. And the fact that I won by some 60 meters over my competition broke that myth to pieces. And, I mean, some great things happened. Well, I went on home and was counted the most outstanding amateur athlete of the year. Some great things happened. And I returned to Germany the next year. And uh, a, a guy walked up to me as I was warming up and he said, excuse me, Madeline. And I said, yes. And he said, I'm Vera Nicolik's coach. Now, I stopped. And I said, oh. I said, how is she? And he started crying. And I waited. And finally, he said, I, I need to tell you this. Vera, after we left Mexico, was taken into, well, they called it back then an insane asylum. She was taken where mental cases had to be dealt dealt with he said and she never spoke during the whole year she'd never said he said I would go there every other day and just spend time with her and just talk about any and everything and she never spoke until last month and last month I was sitting there talking as I usually do and she stopped me and she said coach Madeline came back and she was on her way to her finals And from that day on, she started talking and he started working with her. And he said, she's here today. I was like, oh, no. (laughs) And he said, but she's not in shape yet. You know, uh, she's not running the 800. She's running a 1500 just for endurance sake. And she's working her way back. Well, about that time, I hear somebody hollering, Madeline, Madeline. And I turn around and look across the field and it's Vera. And she is running toward me, and I start running toward her in the middle of the field, we connect and we're hugging each other, you know how girls do, and jumping around and hollering and crying and everything. and she stops me and she catches me by my shoulders and shakes me, and she said, bone to God, I bone to God." And I looked at her and I said, <laughs> I can tell there's light in your eyes and i I just we just hugged and um She just said, you know, things like, thank you, thank you. She had learned a few words of English. I hadn't learned Yugoslavian yet. So so that's about all we could say. (laughs) But from that point on, I realized it wasn't about winning the gold medal. It wasn't about being the first woman to uh, bring back a gold medal for the United States. It wasn't about opening the door for women of color. All across the world. It wasn't about me. It was about being at the right place at the right time with the words of life to give to someone who was dying. And then I saw, I said, Lord, now I see how my athletic ability works in the kingdom of God here on the earth.
2: Wow. Well, oh, yeah, Allison's starting to cry. So, <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, Allison. So, okay. So, that's starting 1960- to cry. Yeah, oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. Uh, go go so, on without so me. I'll now we're fine. in 1969. Ooh. How do you then, uh, that plan unfolds? How, How does it keep going as you go on to other Olympics?
0: Yeah. One, being constantly called upon as a, uh, captain of a team and giving my opportunity to serve my teammates, that keeps opening that door for me to give and to love and to be there as a person who would listen, who cared. Because, you know, uh, being an Olympian, being an athlete at that level, you can be very self-centered. And I mean, it's not irreverent to be that way. Because if you don't pay attention to yourself, well, you just won't do well. But at the same time, you have the opportunity to reach out to your teammates and to people that you even compete against. And I can remember there were times that there were girls that I would run against that I would reach out and say to them, what do you have to run today? And I don't know if I would ask that because i wanted somebody to run with me or uh, or what but I, I really cared and they sometimes some of them would say, like, well you know i gotta just do well or some of them would say well my coach coach wants me to run this time and i would tell them i said well my coach wants me to run this time and um if you're anywhere close to me know that that's what i'm going to be going after running this time you know because i i uh uh, was doing you know according to each 200 150 200 uh, meters 300 meters that I was pacing myself I knew how to pace myself and I said if you're close to me then this is what you're doing or if you're uh, in front of me uh, this is what you'll be doing and and just really try to help them and even in a race there've been times in a race I've just said come on we got to go now you know know, <laughs> just and it wasn't, I wasn't trying to be a goody two-shoe. I really cared. I wanted us to do well. And a lot of times, you know, we'd be talking about beating the Europeans or beating the Russians, you know, or whatever. Then we need to run this, you know, and we need to get i I'll never forget the time I, I told a group of uh, young women uh, that were part of the 800 meters as we were at our Olympic trials that I said let's let's try to break the 2 minute. I became the first woman in the United States to break the 2 minute. But I wanted somebody to go along with me. And I told them I said listen, we're all running really well. I mean, we're in the best shape of our lives. We can help each other. Let's let's go after trying to break that 2 minute. They were like, "Oh no, 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 no." Now, if you want to do that, fine. You know, they can come scrape you off the ground, but they're not doing that to me. You know, I was like, listen, the Europeans are doing it, so it's not impossible, all right? We're just it's in good a shape as they are, so let's at least go out and try to do it. Let's, you know, figure this thing out and see how we're going to do it. How You know, I'll pace it for you if you want me to or however you want, and they, they just would not. The fear of trying to break a barrier like that was too much. And so I just prayed about it, and I said, Father, I'm going to go out there and give it all I've got, and I just ask that you don't let me get embarrassed, <laughs> don't let them have to scrape me off the track and carry me out on a stretch or something like that, please. I don't want to be embarrassed like that, but I'll give you everything I've got. And I did, and the thing that I found out is that deception is a monkey, because the deception that all of us that we were going to die if we tried to do that it was so i told the girls later on i said you know what that was the easiest race that i have ever run i said once i put my fear aside and went just went for it one it felt better two it was over quicker and three once I came through the line and saw the time, I got so much energy, <laughs> I almost ran another lap. I was like, this is how it feels. It feels so good to be able to put out and go for it like that, especially if you have uh, worked hard and you have trained and uh, brought your bo- body under strict training, and you know what you can do, but you're just scared to do it. If you break that barrier you'll find that there's a lot of life and excitement and it doesn't hurt as bad. You know, I thought it was going to kill me. You know, it did not. It did just the opposite. Because once I looked up and saw the time of 158 something, probably the first time I broke it, I ran a 159.7. But the next time, 158. And each time I could I could tell my body was like, thank you one this got over with quicker we didn't have to labor so long you know and secondly look at the time this is so exciting so that started open up you know the other side for other competitors in the United States to start looking like wait wait a minute if she can do that I can do that and they started going for it and now today a lot of our girls uh, stay under two minutes they just stay under two minutes. It's so wonderful to look at this. But uh, it it comes from a heart of caring, of wanting to reach out, want to see the best for others, not just for
2: yourself. So I have a question about doing an 800 under two minutes. When you were competing, it had not been that long prior that women were allowed to run the 800 meters again because of course back in yeah. 1928 you know women were too delicate and body parts would fall but out if they ran them out
0: on the ground <laughs> <laughs> did, did have you ever seen that picture of them i, I saw that film of them and they were all falling out of ground on the ground like they had one run a marathon but i think it was from <laughs> it's, it's it's from them being told that they they couldn't it it, it was going to halfway kill you and the fears of it's going to mess up your reproductive system and nobody really knowing how to train them to run uh, 800 and it was looked at as a distance run even in, in 68 it was still looked at a distance run because it was the longest distance at that time the next four years they put in the 1500 and then the next you know three years until they got to the marathon, but now it's looked looked at as a middle distance sprint, and that's how it should be looked at because, I mean, it's not that you sprint the whole thing like 100 meters. There is a pacing in it that takes place, but it's not a loping either. It's not a cross-country run or a distance run where you're loping, so it's looked at different, completely different. And no body
2: parts fall out. That's, amazing. That's the amazing right. part.
0: I know, and
2: you can still have babies. <laughs> oh, my. I do want to ask a little bit about 1980 and your experiences uh-huh. with the boycott. So talk to us a little yeah. bit about when you were first aware that this could be a possibility that the U.S. would not go to the games and and how that evolved from there. Right.
0: So I was, I thought I was finished, right? <laughs> I thought, okay, it is finished. It's done. I'm not doing anymore and everything. And then I get a, a real call um, from the Lord on my life to come out and run again. And I said, for what? <laughs> and his answer is because I need you. And I thought, mm. I wrestle with that. We had a big argument and he won. So there I am training again. My coach comes from Indiana and moves here to Tulsa, Oklahoma, sets up a track team at ORU, and we get started. We start training. Nothing at that time, that was in 79, nothing at that time was being said about a boycott or anything. So I'm, I'm giving it all of that. We're trying new stuff, new training mechanisms, this whole thing. And then, kind of, a, a whisper comes around that Russia is hosting the Games for 1980, and they're still in Afghanistan in war. And that is against the principles of Olympism that a host country hosting the World Games would be still in war. Back in the day, they stopped. If they were in war it's for something, the host country, they would start for the games. Now, after the games, they would sometimes continue on or either they work it out another way. But uh, this was against the very principles of having fair play and competition against, you know, between the different nations and people groups. So I kind of got that. And all of a sudden, I was asked to go speak at a coach's convention I think it was in Colorado somewhere, and there was a TV group that came in from Russia that wanted to interview me. And after I got off the stage, they cornered me aside and said, we'd like to speak to you about the boycott. And I said, oh, are we boycotting? And they said, well, your your president is calling for a boycott because of the Afghanistan war. What do you think about this? Don't you think that that's unfair that the, and all of a sudden they start saying things to, to tell me what to say they didn't They didn't give me a chance at the time to answer the question of how I felt about that, and they're they're trying to tell me what to say and I got insulted about that. I didn't like the fact don't come over to my country and tell me what to say against my pre- president and against the United States, that doesn't sit well with me. And so once they stopped talking and had tried to tell me what to say, <laughs> I said to them, well, first of all, Russia shouldn't be in Afghanistan during the Olympic Games because that goes against the whole principles of Olympism and and the reason why the Olympic Games exists. I said, and secondly, I know this for a fact, that there is not one of your athletes that would be able to stand up on anybody's television and talk about or against its government or against your prime minister. I said, we probably wouldn't see them again. So I don't appreciate you coming and and telling me that I need to feel this way or that way about something and wanting me to say this on international television. And they said, uh, spasiba, which means thank you. <laughs> and they left. But then I began to think, are we getting ready to boycott? I'm, I'm out here working my butt off, and we're getting ready to not go? What's the deal with this? So I do what I normally do. I went, and I got alone, and I began to pray. And like, what's up, Father? Why have you called me? to this whole situation, if there's not going to be a situation, if there's not going to be an Olympic games, you said you needed me. So what am I, so what, how do you need me? Of course, the Lord didn't answer me right then. But as we went along, I really thought there were days, because when you're training, you're training hard and it hurts. I mean, there is no training without suffering, Okay. No pain, no gain is very real. So I'm out there and trying to figure out why am I doing this? Why should I keep going if there's nothing to go for? So I don't know. I I just realize that I needed I need to keep going and see what the end's going to be. I don't understand. Maybe maybe this is going to turn around at the last moment and all of a sudden we're going. Maybe Russia will get out of. Afghanistan and say okay for so many days for 30 days we're out I don't know what's going to happen so finally I kept training and the Olympic trials was one of the best races that I had I again broke my Olympic trials record and also won very concisely over my competition and became the most outstanding female athlete of the meet. Everything was going really well. And the thing is, I thought about it, and I was like, I'm in the best shape of my life. <laughs> and and now, I, by that time, I knew of the boycott. And I was like, well, you know, I was not born to just sit back and not do anything. I was born to run, so I'm going to run. I'll run, you know, however it happens. We get to the White House. We meet President Carter and his wife. And I, I remember talking to his wife, and I said, just know that I'm praying for you because I know this was a hard decision to make. I don't know what all goes through this whole process, but I would not like to be in your shoes. And she, she calls and, and calls her husband and what, cause he was talking to another Olympian and she's like, honey, honey, you've got to hear this. You've got to hear this. And so he comes over and he, he meets me and, um, and she says, tell him what you told me. And I said, well, Basically, I just told her that I'm praying for you. I'm praying for whatever is causing this whole situation of us boycotting. And just know that you have someone praying for you, okay? And he, tears came to his eyes. And he, he just said, Thank you so much. We need prayer. And um, so, all right, when we finish there, someone comes to the captains of the teams, the different sports. And says, uh, We need someone or two people that will give a response to the presidential address to the American people on the steps of the Capitol. I did not recognize that anybody even knew about me at all, you know. But all of a sudden they said, Well, we have two Olympians here. This will be their fourth Olympic Games. Uh, we have um, a modern pentathlete. And we have a young lady who was in track and field, and I thought, are they talking about me? <laughs> and they said, well, you know, with Madeline Manning, please say, come. And I forgot the guy's name, but anyway, we were chosen. I talked to him afterward, and I said, okay, well, we got to get together. You know, we we only have a certain amount of time to say whatever we need to say, and. Uh, I said I don't know what to say because this is from A to Z. We've got people on here feel that they should, we should kill the president and the other people that are waving flags, and so and everybody in between. So I cannot imagine how we're going to represent the whole Olympic team to the American people in response to the address of the the president. And he said. Don't look at me. You're the one that's the speaker. As he said, just write whatever's down that I'm supposed to say, and I'll say it. I was like, you got to be kidding. You are not gonna leave me just hanging out here by myself. He's like, I don't know what to say either, Madeline. You know. So I'm up. I'm up till like two o'clock in the morning trying to figure out what to say, and I'm throwing paper away. After a while, I just like I gave up. I was like, that enough is enough. I I don't know what to say. I'm just have to tell them. We, I'm sorry, we couldn't figure out what to say. <laughs> but as soon as I said, Lord, I cannot do this. I don't know what to say. It's like the Lord said, finally. <laughs> like, good, move out of my way and let me talk for you. And so in 10 minutes, I wrote the whole speech. I mean, it just started flooding. It just started coming. And one of the things that I acknowledged, I think the theme basically of, is that we are a family. This is not just a U.S. team that goes out somewhere and represents you and come back and we have nothing, you have nothing to do with you, you don't have anything to do with us. No, we are a family. And I said something to the effect that the father of our nation has made a decision on the behalf of the family. And like any family, some will agree some will not. Some will be in the middle. It doesn't matter. We're still a family. And yes, we as athletes do what we were called to do. We compete. And it has it has really been detrimental to us, uh, mentally and physically, to think that all the work we've put in will go to naught. But we're still part of the family. And then there are uh, those who ha- we have looked at and realized that they are saying, you're coming anyway. And our father has stood up and said, no, we're not. And, and made it plain that we will not come to a country who is hosting war, who is hosting the games in, a, in, in war. So I said, it's been a very difficult decision, but I'm, I'm say this, as time goes forward, We need the help and backing of our business people, of people who can help us financially to give the very best that we can. We need a better system. And I don't know whatever else, I wish I had, I know somewhere that that speech is, but where it is, I have no clue. But four years later, Uber set up the most outstanding economic games in the United States ever and everything that i said in that speech came to life and uh, to to say it this way how do you know that a prophet is a prophet is the, if their word comes true so the lord had spoken a word to the nation through me to encourage it to to unite together as a family and embrace their athletes that represent them as one. And so that's my experience from 1980. Was I upset? Yes, I was in that. I was in the best shape I had ever been in and didn't get an opportunity at the Olympic Games to, to show that or to win another gold. But it wasn't about the gold medal. It was about uniting our country. And um, God used me in that way to be a vessel that would speak on his behalf.
2: Did those experiences then help plant
0: that seed of the chaplaincy program? Probably, probably so. It probably deepened it because I was not aware that that type of thing was happening to me. Although I was very aware that I was there uh, ministering and being awakened. At sometimes ridiculous times of the night and all through the day by athletes who were going through some different things that just needed a listening ear or a shoulder to cry on, that type of thing. But I didn't realize that I was being molded and shaped into a a chaplain, the type of chaplain that could really benefit, Uh, not a religious chaplain, but a chaplain filled with God's love that was ready to build the kingdom of God in a, in sports through his love. Yeah, I didn't I don't think I became aware of this until my mom passed away in 2003. For, she was with us for 8 years and she had Alzheimer's which get got worse and worse in the last 2 years was the worst part of it because she lost her personality. She lost, she was the grand queen. Her name was Queen, but she was the grand queen, uh, maternal queen of our family. Very classy woman, little education, but deep wisdom and knowledge and a woman of great faith who really loved her generations. And um, after she left, it was almost like she handed me her mantle, like go on, you know, go forth in doing the, the works that God has placed on your heart. So I I was very unaware that there was any such thing. Because back in, in the days when I was running, I remember in 1976, my third Olympic Games, there was a priest, a Catholic priest that was a part of the staff. But he really didn't do much of anything. He, he, he. As far as I know, he didn't have any religious services for us. One of the athletes came to me because she had been to him and was in distress and asked how he can. And he said something about, "Well, good luck. You know, I just, you know, hope the best for you." And that was all he had to say because he had not been trained at all to and prepared at all, and he wasn't an athlete. And he didn't know what to say or how to function. He went down to the pub with the guys, you know, and drank beer and sometimes got a little tipsy. And, you know, and I'm thinking, well, and so the athletes a lot of times would come back to me and say, you know, we don't need nobody like that on staff. And I was like, yeah, you better believe it, you know, because what is he doing here? You know, but so I'm glad that. I got the experience from both sides as an athlete who went through the pain and suffering and the price it paid to be number one. And also I went through the pain and suffering of losing at the highest level and being challenged about, okay, in fact, this, this is one, one quick story in uh, 1976, I ran in the semis trying to go on to get into the finals of the 800 and ran a very lethargic race. If you keep running long enough, you'll have those type of races, but you just hope they don't show up at the games. You know, well, this time it showed up at the games and I ended up running dead last coming off of the, the, um, track. I was confused. I was hurt. I was angry. I didn't know what was going on and why that had happened. But I remember being asked and I don't think had I won that they would ask me this question, but uh the news media immediately, you know, just bombarded me. And and one guy stopped me and he said, Listen, I know this is confusing and everything, but we have something we need to ask you. You've been saying that you're running for Jesus and that you know, you run to give him the glory. What we want to know is, are you still going to run for Jesus or are you, going to try to, are you going to try something else? And I looked at him. I was like, what? And all of a sudden, I realized in the face of the whole world that was watching and listening, I was being asked, is Jesus a figment of your imagination or is he a real God? And so I told him, I said, you know what? Yes, I'm hurting very badly. I don't understand. I'm confused. I don't know what happened out there, why I ran such a lethargic race after two weeks ago running a world record in the 3,000. I felt like I was ready to at least be on the winner's podium. I said, I don't know, but I want to tell you this. Whether I'm running in circles around the track or whether I'm running somewhere else in the world doing whatever I do, I will always run for Jesus because he's not a figment of my imagination, nor is he a crutch. He is a real God who came to the earth for my salvation and for my redemption, who I am thankful for, who loves me. And so I will always run for Jesus. And he said, thank you very much. And walked off. A bunch of them walked off and another guy uh, stood there and he said, you said something that you died out there on the track. What, what do you mean by that? I said, the self-centered, the wanting to be the best, the desire that I had in my heart to to get, gain another gold medal to set another world record, all of that died. But I have found my life that there's nothing that has the power or the ability to separate me from my relationship with my Lord. And that's what I mean. In my death, I have found life and I, I'm thankful for it. I feel closer to God than I ever have. He was like, wow, I've never heard it put like that. It's like, hmm.
2: <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> just kind of stunned. <laughs> Does that, I mean, seeing both sides of the, or experiencing both sides of the spectrum, you got the gold right. medal, but then you've also had really bad performances at the Olympics. Does that give you more yeah, credibility right. to the athletes you serve?
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Because they understand. A, a friend of mine who actually is the chairman of my uh, board, uh, who's been a chaplain since 84 He's not an Olympian. He's a theologian, a just powerful, very brilliant theologian in the world. But he's so humble, very humble. And uh, he often says, I find that when I go to the Olympics, a lot of times, uh, young people that I will be there for, there is out of 10 competitions, there's one wedding and nine funerals. And it was, in other words, there are more people who lose than who win, and so you've got to prepare yourself for those who lose because this—it's many, many more that go away with dreams broken, or disappointment, or disparage and feeling—you know—down on themselves. Where you want them to understand that you, whatever you perform doesn't change how God loves you. You're still valuable in his sight and how to raise them back up to feel good about themselves, not so much about your performance and being performance driven, but that you're loved and and you're appreciated for even putting out what it took to get you there. So um, that's the reality of seeing uh, and experiencing losing and experiencing, you know, like in 72, I stopped at the wrong line in the 800 meters. I was trying to qualify for the 800 meters final, end up stopping at the wrong line. And in doing so, I was walking off the side and it happened to see out of my peripheral vision, uh, the girl from England just charging forward. And instinctively, I, I leaned forward, you know, and then I figured, what am I doing? You know, I'm off the track. And um, she came over to me and said, you know, wh- why did you stop? And I said, because I was finished, right? I was finished. I was at the finish line, right? She said, no, the finish line is up there. I was like, what? And, I, and, I mean, I was like, unbelievable. That's unbelievable. I asked the official. Standing there, because I was in lane one, I asked him, where's the finish line for me? Because they're all kind of lines for, for, you know, hurdles and relays and starts of this and endings of that, all on the thing. And I asked him, and he said, right where you start? Well, it wasn't. And it took 15 minutes for them to figure out that I lost by two centimeters. I was not in the finals by two centimeters. Now, when you tell, you know, a, an athlete who has gone out there, finally maybe, maybe made it to the finals, maybe not, but they've given it everything they had. The question I have is, did you give it everything you had? Did you do your best? Okay. Well, if you did, then that's all you can do. That's all anybody can ask of you is that you give it your best. And t- today, this was your best. Now, week from now, month from now, next year, you might do something that betters your performance, but it's still your best on that day. And so helping them to understand what's going on in this competitive world that they call the Olympics or the world championships or, you know, this type of thing, that's part of competition. And it's also part of life life will not always not be fair you know there are times this is very unfair sometimes there's favor and you don't even know why it came your way you know just favored that it happened to happen that way but then there's the opposite side there's the opposite side of and helping them to get through the rigors of life and uh, all that it has for them.
2: Wow. Allison, Mm -hmm. do you have anything else?
1: No, because my mind has exploded. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still recovering from the Vera story, so don't mind me. I'm just sitting here
0: trying not to sob uncontrollably. Listen, I have been on stage and telling that and can barely get through the story because of the impact. That it had on my life and helped me to see my identity in this world, the purpose for which I was born. It's a powerful thought. Did you stay so. in
1: touch with her after that? Were you able to since no,
0: where she was? No, I wasn't able to because Yugoslavia, you know, they went into war, there were things that were going on, there, there was change ups. And I haven't, one time, I think. Uh, I don't know if I, I got, I received a letter. I don't know, but I had been over in Europe doing, uh, I've seen contemporary gospel, gospel music, and as a concert artist. And I was over in Berlin and we, we went to some other places and um, I received a letter from her and um I don't even know where it is now. That's terrible. I wish I had kept it. Because I, I would have loved to say you have no idea how many times I've shared your story. But I have no. I haven't um, kept in touch with her or know anything about. It. I wish I could find some of, you know, like there were there, there's a Russian girl that constantly, she was my nemesis, you know. And uh, she ran the 1500 and 800. And I often wonder, I wonder where she is and how she's doing. Wow. <laughs> just, yeah. What, what
2: a fascinating life. And just <laughs> there, there's a sense of contentment in knowing that you're doing what your purpose is.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Very much so. Now, it hasn't made me rich or anything, but rich in, yeah, rich in my faith and rich in my uh, love toward people. It has fulfilled that gracefulness and continues to do so.
2: Thank you so much, Madeline. You can learn more about her organization, the United States Council for Sports Chaplaincy at uscsc03.com. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So uh, that story of Vera was pretty emotional, I will say. Both of us. A
1: little. Did we cry? I think we you did. were.
2: You were very close. I had some tears in my eyes, but like you were, pretty that much was, reaching that for was Kleenex. Rough.
1: I don't know why that was so rough for me. Maybe, and I, I take that back. I think I do know, because. Growing up watching gymnastics and all those Eastern European gymnasts, and you know, and we've been reading so much about how the Eastern European coaches were so abusive. Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking about what that woman must have gone through and how she was just trying to be an athlete. And we we know I, I get crazy whenever anybody gets in the way of the athlete. And it's like this whole system was bringing her down and all she wanted to do was
2: run. And Right. The the enormous pressure on, we must bring back a gold medal. And now it's up to you. And the fear that she must have had of knowing or imagining what might have happened to her or the team or the coaches or all of them if she didn't deliver. And I can totally see how that would break you. Right. But Madeline was there. It's just interesting how things happen like that for a reason.
1: I know. It It definitely makes you believe in fate or kismet or, or you know, the hand of God or whatever you believe that these just aren't random acts.
2: Right, right, right. Well, because it's been a long week already and it's only Wednesday, <laughs> I thought it was still Tuesday there for a second.
1: And, you know, it's locked down, so we can't even go to Shookflistan.
2: Right, right, right. So. We will visit them next week and get more updates on Tokyo as well. Well, because it's been a long week, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. If you can help us to hunt down Madeline's European competitors, let us know.
1: Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208flameit. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and Keep the Flame Alive Podcast Group on Facebook.
2: Next week we're talking about Olympians' biological clocks, so be sure to tune in for that episode. And as we go up to music by Archdale, thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the plane alive.